Well, let's go ahead and, and um, pick up in our Roman study and, and see, uh, see if we can get a few verses uh, done here that I'm hoping to get done. So let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for this time and this opportunity to, to open up your word. And we thank you for um, the word that we just heard and, and uh, just to hear about Jim's love for you and his desire to honor you and um, things in his life that brought him to where he's at and understanding that um, something that we all need to understand, that uh, we do have a purpose. And our purpose is to glorify you in our lives. And so, Father, again, we give you thanks for for that um, that we just heard, and I just pray for the study and the services to follow. Amen. Okay, Romans chapter 5. Try and keep us uh, on task here. Uh, this is kind of messing up there. Um, we left off in verse 5. And just by a quick review, I won't spend much time on it because... Uh, we won't uh, be able to get too far, but we've talked about here in the beginning of Romans 5 how we, it gives us uh, understanding of our blessings in Christ Jesus, um, the things that, uh, things that we get, these spiritual blessings that we have. B- verse 1 talks about being justified by faith. We saw that we have peace with God. We saw that we have access to God and access to the grace of God. It's really... We don't get access to God unless we first get access to the grace of God, and we don't get those things except for the fact of what Christ has done for us. And that's how that happens. And so um, as we looked at those different things, um, verses 5 through 11, which I'm going to try to get through this week, um, speak about the believer not having to face the wrath of God. And the key verses um, and um, as we go through this, if you're taking notes, the key verses really are verses 5, 9, and 11 as it relates to um, this, this topic we're talking about. The fact that um, the believer does not have to face the wrath of God. And um, as we saw in the verse, first verse, we have, we have peace with God, we have access to God, and so um, therefore we don't have the wrath of God. So let's pick up and we'll read verses 5 through 11. It says, and hope makes not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure, perhaps for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commends his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we have now received the atonement. Wherefore, as by, well, that's verse 12. We'll stop at verse 11 because I'll be lucky to get through through, uh, these here. And so, again, as we look at these things, when we think about the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, um, when we think of our position, all of these things that come to us because now we've been justified, um, one of the, the 
positional things that it seems like humans don't understand, Christians don't understand, is that you are no longer an enemy with God. You have peace with him. That peace is not based upon what you've done. It's based upon what Christ has done. Therefore, you can't even do something to eliminate that peace because it was God that justified. He's the one that gave us this peace. And so we can't do anything about that. And so many people don't have the peace of God because they don't know that they have peace with God. And and we as the believers in this passage, again, we can see clearly that we do have. Verse 5, it says that uh, our hope is certain. Hope makes not ashamed, and that's that's what this is talking about. You, There won't be the time in the future when, uh-oh, my hope wasn't certain. I have reason to be ashamed about it, and that's why it's using this terminology. Your hope is certain. Your hope is the idea. We, we think about the fact, oh, I get to get rid of this body that's decaying. That is, that is a great hope that we get this new body. But that pales into comparison to what is facing man who does not have peace with God. The wrath of God is going to be poured out. And that is um, the hope that we have. The hope that I don't have to deal with that. So in verse 5 we see hope makes it not ashamed. Our hope is certain. Verse 9 says we're saved from wrath. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Remember, if you go back to Romans chapter 1, look at Romans 1.18, what, what did God say that was upon all men? Wrath. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Now, I understand today I am not positionally ungodly, but that's only because I've been justified by Christ. Every human being, according to Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Therefore, every single one of us was ungodly. The only reason why we're not ungodly is because of Christ, not because of us. And the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. That was our position. But as the verses we're looking at uh, this morning, Christ came in due time to save us from that situation. And so the wrath of God is, is, is upon all. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So all of mankind was under God's wrath, destined towards God's wrath. It was a certainty. As certain as our hope is that we have salvation, is just as certain that every single human, Adam onward, was destined towards God's wrath. No exceptions. And so what Romans 5 tells us is is that we can be certain that we no longer have that destiny. That's not our situation. Verse 11 tells us the fact that it's, we have this, we have received the atonement, this reconciliation. It says, verse 11, and not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Atonement there being reconciliation. This is about your relationship. You're no longer appointed under wrath, as we'll see later. But you have this new relationship. And so you're not destined to wrath. You're justified. We have atonement. We've been reconciled. Reconciled speaks of the idea that that relationship has been restored. 
we have a restored relationship and God has no longer appointed us. Even though that day of wrath is still coming, you and I, we can have joy knowing that we are not destined towards that. So that's kind of a quick summary of, of, of what, this is, what this is talking about here. But let's, uh, let's kind of break down some of these verses a little bit. Look at verse 5. It says, hope makes not ashamed. And it says, because the love of God. And as I said, the hope of glory um, shall not disappoint. We shall not have a disappointment in the end. It is certain. Titus 2.13 says, looking for that, that glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you don't know if you're saved and the one is getting ready to show up to judge you, it's probably not something you're looking forward to. You know, it's kind of like the police are on their way and you don't know whether they're going to arrest you or not. I'm probably not finding too much joy in the fact that they're coming over. But you can have joy when Christ is, the Christ is coming for you because you have a certain hope. There's no, no concern of a disappointed situation. When Christ's come, you get to look forward uh, to his appearing. It says here, because of the love of, love of God. One of the things I would also tell you is Roman 5, uh, goes extraordinarily well with Romans chapter 8. So when you're reading or studying Romans chapter 5, go ahead and jump and skip over to Romans chapter 8 and, and read that at the same time because it is so much, uh, so much of it is relatable to each other. Uh, so turn to me to Romans chapter 8, look at verse 31. Romans 8, 31. Starting there anyway. He says, what shall we say, then say, to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? And that's the ultimate truth. I mean, it's kind of like if you think about it in in simpler terms, if you know you're going to go before the judge in a a courtroom here on earth, you don't really care if uh, if the opposing attorney is against you because the judge or the jury has already found you not guilty. So if the judge or the jury, in this case both, is for you, then who really can be against you? And so if God be for us, who can be really against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. That's what I was talking about before. Keep in mind that... um, I don't know that we'll get into this, but one of these days I really need to preach and teach on um, the love of God and, and, and point out the fact that the world is, is somewhat um, got a, the wrong impression here. Um, God loves us. Yes, I agree with that. But, but man seems to think that God owes us his love. God loved us, and he did something about it. But your salvation ultimately is in God's love for the Son. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. My, he calls him the Beloved, is what he calls him multiple times. We, we, have, we have been um, forgiven because we've been brought into the Beloved, the Beloved One, and that is Jesus Christ. Yeah. Would it be fair to say that, that uh, we were born for him, we were created for him, which, Revelation chapter 4 says yeah, specifically that. Yeah. Which we don't want to hear because we want it to be about us. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and that's what we do sometimes, I think, is, is we, we make it about us when, in fact, 
Um, whenever God looks at this situation, this transaction, so to speak, that took place, it's not that you're saved because he just loves you so much. You're saved because he loves Jesus Christ, his son, so much. And Jesus Christ paid the price. Your price is paid. It's owed. It's, it's done over. We've been, we've been brought into that beloved, into that relationship. Tim, did I see you have your hand up? Okay, sorry. Um, so, yeah. So whenever it talks about this idea, the charge of God's elect... Um, no charge can be made against Jesus Christ. And if you're in him, no charge can be made against you. So it goes on. Who is he that condemns? It's Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution or famine or nakedness, peril or sword. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. And he goes back to finish his thought. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death... Now think of, think of what all this encompasses, what this is in Ray say. And he's listing the things that can't separate you from the love of Christ, the love of God. That neither death nor life, that pretty much says everything right there. You don't even have to fill anything else. Nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. And if that wasn't enough, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, which would include yourself, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so you can see whenever, whenever we see this aspect of how love is the situation of our relationship that we have with God now through Christ Jesus, we have, we have a situation, a relationship that can never be severed because we have, we have this peace, we have access, we have all these things. And so we have to understand also that whenever it says us there in all of those Romans 8 passages, who's the us? Believers. Believers. Again, the world wants to think that us is the world. And, and it's not. Us here is the believers. And it's, it's upon them that believe. And it's not upon um, just mankind um, uh, wholeheartedly. Because remember, go back to Romans 5. <laughs> notice who Christ died for. The ungodly. Romans 5 verse 6 says it's the ungodly, right? So... You know, people, sometimes they want to overanalyze, I think, and they wonder, well, did I really believe? And, you know, and, and I don't really don't want to get into that kind of thing because I, I think that's a very dangerous conversation. But one of the things I would tell you is, is that, you know, if somebody doesn't understand that at least at some point that they were ungodly, then you're suggesting that Christ didn't need to die for you. Now, what does that say about your salvation? The fact of the matter is, is Christ... Christ came to die for those who are ungodly, which happens to be everybody. But if you don't acknowledge the fact that you're ungodly, then you're, you're saying you don't need a Savior. You didn't need Christ to die for you. Because trust me, if, if, if there was another way, then why would Christ even have to die? And so, go ahead. And 
it makes me think of Paul talking to the Corinthians and um, where we get the gospel from in 1 Corinthians 15. And we know the Corinthians were involved in a lot of sin and he tells them, you know, that first of all, what he shared with them was the gospel of their salvation, but he goes on to say, unless you believed in vain. And so it's kind of that point there, um, you know, believing that he died for your sins is, is accepting that you need a savior. Mm-hmm. Unless you believe in vain. Sure. Yeah, because, you know, what all do you have to believe? Well, you need to believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Um, well, you need to understand that Jesus Christ is making an offer of, of saving you from a situation, that, that desperate situation that you're in, the desperate situation that Paul has just spent the last uh, four chapters detailing that every human's in. And so whenever he says here that it's for the ungodly, it's understanding that we understand that everybody was ungodly. But there are those, we talk to somebody that, well, I'm a pretty good guy. You know, I'm not ungodly. Well, do you really understand what you're saying here? You know, and so Christ died because of the desperate situation that we're in. He says here that we were without strength. So when we're without strength, we were without strength to be able to do any good. We were without strength to deal with our sin. We were without strength to be able to live godly. Remember last week for the Sunday message, we talked about the mystery of godliness. How can you be godlike without doing anything? That's the mystery of godliness. And so here, you know, this idea of, of being without strength, we were without strength to be godly. We had no strength whatsoever to be able to, to, to do good because our good works are as filthy rags to God so how is it that how is it from my strength that I could do anything to please God I couldn't please any guy again I think sometimes we think you know you know somebody who's that non-believer they think that well I gave to charity I you know I did this stuff I did all this kind of stuff well you know you can do all of that but it's like what Jim was talking about when he was up here. Because he understand, he understood what he needed, um, that relationship with, with Jesus Christ. Because if you reject that, then nothing else is, is, is going to matter. We were without strength. And so Christ died. It says here that he came in due time. And that's a pretty interesting statement. And I would suggest that if you got time to do a Bible study on that, um, understand that the idea here is is that it's the perfect time unlike me and my messages that that seem to maybe ramble on and I don't end at the perfect time Christ came at the perfect time the time after he had already the world it had been displayed that that whether it was before the law or with the law that man was in a desperate situation and they were ungodly he had displayed it openly into all how desperate the situation was. So Christ died at the appointed time. There's other times this is used. Turn to Galatians, Galatians chapter 4. So at a perfect time, he died. And at a perfect time, he came. But when the Galatians 4 4, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. And so again, at the perfect time, God came. Never early, 
never late. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. We were talking about this a few weeks ago. Talking about God, verse 4, who would have all men to be saved and come to the under the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Now, there's more there to that verse than, than meets the eye. He wasn't testified to all when he initially came. He was testified to Israel. But when the perfect time came is whenever he was testified to all. And so understanding that this idea of in due time, it comes with the idea that there is a, a, a perfect perfect timing in God's how he goes about things. Mike? Well, I just, when I... When I look at that verse, I think of, of the perfect time of when he'll come back uh, to reign and also when he'll, when he'll rapture us. And the perfect time is driven by, by his desire for all to be saved. And he's so long-suffering in, in doing that. If you look at our world today and how messed up it is, mm-hmm. you know, it's only because of his love that 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 time for those two two functions are delayed mm-hmm. you know because he wants more people to come to know him sure yeah God's timing we, we, we can say Maranatha uh, and there's nothing wrong with saying Maranatha our Lord come um, that is a good thing we can we can look forward to it. we can pray for it and all that thing but again I can promise you the Lord Jesus' return is going to be at a perfect time his time will be perfect and Turn to Titus chapter 1, verse 3. Again, we see this idea. And so when you study your Bible, pay attention to some of these phrases because they're used in other things, especially when it comes to understanding doctrine, even rightly dividing doctrine. Titus 1, 3 says, But it hath in due time manifested his word through the preaching, through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. When you understand what in due time means, and now you can apply it into other passages and understand that it wasn't Paul was chosen, and he was chosen to go preach a message that God had reserved for a perfect time. And that's what we can understand from this. And so, again, whenever it talks about here that Christ died for us um, when we were without strength, he died for the ungodly. And he did it in due time, knowing that it was a perfect thing. Verse 7 and 8, go back to Romans chapter 5. Verse 7 and 8, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commends his love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. King James is, is almost so poetic that it does itself harm, I think, sometimes. And what I mean by that is it's so poetic that, that sometimes it's so easy to say. But again, I, that's why I encourage you. There's a difference between reading the Bible and studying the Bible, understanding the fact here that what this is telling us here is that, you know, very few would ever die for a righteous person. 
You know, we think of situations where man has died for other men. Um, but usually, most people are going to die for their family. You know, who wouldn't die for their child? Husbands, who wouldn't die for their spouse? Or maybe it's the military, who wouldn't die, you know, hopefully for their brother, brother in arms? You know, we hear glorious stories of, of some of the greatest expressions of love when, when a soldier dies for his fellow soldier. But guess what all those things have to do with? The person who did die, what that person's relationship was to them. Few are going to go die for the ungodly. Few are going to go and die for the person that killed their child. Think of that. I might die for my child, but am I going to die for my child's murderer? Am I going to die for Castro? Am I going to die for Hitler? Am I going to die, fill in the blank, the rapist? <coughs> and this is really what it's talking about is, yeah, few would die for the righteous or maybe even a good man, but it says here Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, while we were still enemies, while we were the ones still attacking his name, while we were the ones who were still opposed to him. That begins to, I think, take that beautiful poetic wording that is so true and really, I think, drive home the fact. And this is why, as much as I love John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave, uh, gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Understand this, that verse is not talking about the cross. That's talking about Jesus Christ being lifted up and people looking upon him and believing on him. This here, what I love about this passage is this passage is talking about the cross, the love of God and the cross and how that's related. John 3.16 is very true, but John 3.16 is, again, it's not talking about the cross. It's talking about as, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness and those who believed on him would be saved. John 3.16 is talking about those who are going to go into the kingdom, those who would believe on him, believe on the name of Jesus Christ. And so that's why, as much as I love John 3.16, and it relays a very important truth of God, this here relays that truth specifically and brings the cross into it. And the fact that he died in that love. And again, that's why I think that that's, that's important. Verses 9 through 11 here, we see... Um, Again, that we're justified and we're saved from the wrath to come. Let's read verses 9 through 11. It says, Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were yet enemy, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. And so, again, understanding this, this where it talks about um, this shall, it's not saying that you shall be saved in the sense that you don't have salvation. That's not what this shall is referenced to. It's talking about the wrath to come. And we know that it's saying we're already saved because look at what it says right after that. We have the atonement. You have the reconciliation. And so it's talking about that future wrath is going to come. You have this atonement and that you are saved from that. This wrath, again, so many people don't understand that 
this position, they, they have a difficulty finding, this is one of the reasons why we should always be able to find joy in life, as tough as it is. Nothing is going to compare to the glory that shall be re- revealed in us in the future, and nothing's going to be compared today to the wrath that's coming. And if you can understand which side of the fork that you're on, you can begin to have joy in some of the di- most difficult times. It may not be easy, but this is the things that in Christ only the believer can do. Only the believer can have joy in a way that that it just defies logic. And, and to me, I think that's important to understand. So when we think of this um, judgment or wrath, um, there's two different types of, of, of things that we're talking about. Turn me to Job, Job chapter 21. Job chapter 21. Four Psalms. At least that's how I remember it. Makes it easier for me to break things down into sections. Job chapter 21, look at uh, verse 30 here. It says that the wicked is reserved to the day of destruction. Job here is talking to his friends, and I won't give you the long story. We don't have time for it, but here he makes a comment that the wicked is reserved to the day of destruction. They shall be brought forth to the day of wrath. And this here is, is, is talking about that, that future judgment after the tribulation, after the uh, kingdom, this great white throne judgment, judgment that's going to take place. The wicked is reserved to that. There's a day, there's a reckoning for that that's coming up. Paul talks about this day of judgment in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, I believe it is, where he talks about this day that God has, has appointed. That's that day of wrath, this day of reckoning. But there's also the day of wrath that we need to understand, which is the tribulation period, the time of Jacob's trouble. When we think of 1 Thessalonians 1.10, that you've not been appointed unto wrath, this is why we can understand that because, you're, because our hope is certain, because we're saved from, from wrath in Romans uh, 5 verse 9, that we have this atonement, guess what? No believer is ever going to go before the great white throne judgment. That one... You may not say amen out loud, but I sure hope you're saying it internally. Because I can tell you, what an enormous truth. Amen. Not a single <laughs> believer will go before the great white throne judgment. Thank you. Yeah. And we don't have to worry about that. Guess what? A lot of Christians don't understand this. They may understand that, but they don't understand the fact that the day of Jacob's trouble is also a time of God's wrath. And you're not appointed to any of God's wrath. So guess where you're not going to be? In the tribulation period. You know, whenever Paul says, think on these things, the things that are lovely, the things that are pure, it's kind of hard to have bad moments. Not that you're not going to, but it's a lot easier to change your mood when you start thinking about this stuff here, that you're not going to the great white throne judgment, that you're not going into the tribulation, those types of things. Uh, turn to Zephaniah. We don't go there enough. Zephaniah, one of the minor prophets. So start at Matthew and go back a few books. I think it's like four books, what I think it is. Uh, Zephaniah, uh, go to chapter 1. Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. The 
great day of the Lord. When is that? That's that seven-year tribulation. That's that time that Scripture talks about Jacob's trouble, those types of things. The things that ever I shouldn't say everybody. I've got to be more careful with my words. That so many are worried that they're going to go through the tribulation or even part of the tribulation. No, 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 no. Tribulation is defined as Jacob's trouble. Jacob's trouble is defined as seven years. It's defined as the time of God's wrath. And we're not pointing on it. End of story. It really is that simple. Let's read here. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteth greatly. Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. So we can understand that whenever it's talking about the fact that we're not appointed to wrath, you're not appointed under any of either of those situations, whether it's the tribulation period or if it's, or if it's the, the great white throne judgment. And so, uh, again, this is, as you can tell, I get pretty excited about Romans chapter 5 because, again, there is so much there for us to devour and to be encouraged by, knowing we're justified, knowing that we have peace, knowing that we, we have access, knowing that we have standing, knowing that we're not appointed under wrath, knowing that Christ's timing is imperfect, it's in due time, that we don't have reason to be ashamed. Wow! What a chapter. And so, we'll pick up next week in verse 12, but first, uh, is there any comments or questions uh, on, on any of that? <laughs> we won't even see those, right? Boy, tell me God is not good. Because <laughs> guess what we'll be talking about in the message? <laughs> I'm telling you, it happens, it happens so often. You know, we'll be doing, uh, you know, something in, in, you know, verse by verse, and then I'll be teaching on it, and I'll be writing, whoo, that fits perfectly with what we're talking about, the message. And it wasn't designed that way. And so we'll talk about that, but to answer your question, signs... There are no signs today that we're supposed to be looking for. No, we have warnings, which I'll talk about. We have warnings, but those aren't signs. There's a big difference between a warning and a sign. And so um, we'll talk about that in the, in, the, in the message, and if there's more questions about that, make sure you see me. Or, or, uh, I think Wendy was a plant. <laughs> think she was a plant? No, but... Uh, I tell you what, that couldn't have worked out better. So. The Lord's plan. Yeah. <laughs> the Lord's plan. Any other questions or comments? Okay.